So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, page 673 in the Church Bibles. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Thanks, Grace. Um, morning, everyone. My name is Josh. I'm on staff here. Um, and we're going to spend a bit of time uh, thinking about that passage and what God is telling us through that. And I do really hope that you can all um, follow along, that what I say will make sense. It would help you to have an English copy of what I'm going to say. It's available online on our website. Um, you can go to ChristChurchLiverpool.org and you put a forward slash and write transcript, and that will give you an English copy. There have been Farsi copies available on paper at the Bible's table, and do feel free to scan in uh, to be able to hear what is said in your own language, if that would be more helpful. Well, also keep that passage open, because I'll be referring to it as we go along. Uh, if we want to hear God speaking to us, we will need to pray for his help. So I'm going to begin by praying. Dear Father, we pray that today we would hear your words, hear the things that you will say to us, that we would put aside our own thoughts and imaginations and um, things that we bring, and that we would humble ourselves to hear your pure and true words, and that by your Holy Spirit you transform our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, if you've ever travelled on an aeroplane, and especially if you've sat in a window seat, um, just after you take off, you go through the clouds, when you get up to the top, you might have seen a scene out your window that looks a little bit like this on the screen. Uh, as far as the eye can see, this beautiful landscape of clean, crisp, fresh, white cloud. It looks beautiful. It's bright, it's lit up by the sun, it looks so clean and crisp, it looks like fresh snowfall. It looks like velvety, soft cotton wool stretching out on the landscape, right all the way up to the horizon. It looks really breathtaking, and if you're anything like me, you might have half felt like standing up in the plane and asking the cabin crew, listen, do you have any parachutes? Because I'm happy to just drop me off here. Because I want to go and explore that. Wouldn't you love to, to, to be able to jump out? and go and explore what is going on there, to, to make your way across that landscape to the horizon, to, to bounce on the springy cotton wool, or to, 
to have a little rest, a little lie down in this comfortable, velvety, silk, clean, crisp cloud. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Of course, we know that that's nonsense. Because, of course, we know that the moment you, you put your parachute on and jump into this, as you start to get closer and reach out for that cotton ball soft, bouncy cloud, we know, don't we, that you reach out to touch it and it is actually just... Well, there is actually a word for what it is. There's a Hebrew word that uh, is used quite a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes that was read to us. And the Hebrew word in our English translations is often translated as meaningless. And it doesn't mean that it's without meaning. It means it's like that sense of trying to grasp onto this beautiful bouncy white cloud only to find that it is something you can't actually grasp in your hand. You can't reach out and touch it. You can't lean on it. If you try and put your weight on it, you will plummet right through. It's meaningless. And today in this passage, we are warned that this vaporness may characterize our spiritual lives. Now that might come as a surprise to us, especially if we've been following the book of Ecclesiastes, where we might have been looking out at what the world offers and think, well, we know, of course, money, that's vapor, that's something that you can't take with you, it doesn't last beyond your lifetime. Money or, or status or success, we know all of that is something that you can't lean your life on. But we have been thinking, not whether the time for people to come to church and and pray and read our Bibles, and we have been thinking, well, surely though, the spiritual side of life, that's what's really important. That's what's really lasting. That's what's really substantial. But the teacher in verse 1, the teacher is the, the author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher says to guard ourselves. Because we might find what we do when we relate to God has just been vapor. This passage is going to shine a light on when prayer is vapor. Now, that might sound a bit harsh. might sound a bit critical. So I'm going to tell you that you're doing it all wrong. But I think maybe for many of us, we have experienced the reality of being told, on the one hand, that prayer meetings, or reading your Bible daily, is this deep, personal, vibrant, transforming encounter with the living God. And yet our own experience has just felt a lot more ordinary than that. You're not alone if you felt unmoved by a prayer time. You're not alone if you have felt that reading your Bible regularly doesn't quite fill you up in the way that people have promised. Uh, maybe there is, after all, this crisp white cotton wool cloud that we call spiritual vibrancy that when we reach out for, it turns out to be a handful of mist. Now, the assumption in Ecclesiastes isn't that, well, that's just how it goes. The assumption in Ecclesiastes isn't that, sorry, if you're going to relate to God, it's just going to be like that. No, it thinks that if that's what things are like, there is a problem. And the teacher, in this passage, diagnoses it. It comes from certain wrong attitudes, or I quite like to use the word posture. It's an attitude, it's, it's, the, it's the focus we have when we go into prayer. And we take these postures out of habit. 
when we pray or when we worship. And it starts in our hasty hearts. You see in verse 2, it says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. I don't think this is so much to do with, with the speed at which we pray or how quick we are to turn to prayer. But remember, it's, it's a posture. It's the heart posture towards God. We're being hasty. It's because we're blasé. If you've got a spare £35 knocking around uh, behind your sofa or something, you might be able to invest in this book. Look on the screen. It's um, called Debrett's Handbook on the Correct Form of Modern Manners, British style. It's the authority on how to have good manners. It will tell you all about etiquette, the social code we have in Britain so that you don't offend anyone. And it will tell you how you're expected to behave if you meet a member of the royal family. So, uh, listen up, if you meet the king this week, here's what you need to know. Number one, don't start a conversation with the king. Don't speak until he speaks to you first. Don't sit down unless he sits down first. If you're at a function where there's a meal, don't begin eating until he's begun eating first. A golden rule, don't touch the king. It actually makes the news when somebody touches a monarch in our country, because that's not in the handbook. Um, another one, guests should never leave the event before the royal personage. Looks to be known as a personage. Um, and also, it is considered rude to turn one's back on his majesty. Well, I'm really grateful that we don't have a handbook of rules that we have to obey when we approach God. But because we don't, I think it's a little bit easier to make the mistake of thinking, God, it must be someone a bit more like us then. Because God is kind towards us. Because his posture towards us is one of treating us graciously and tenderly. Because we've got the good news that Jesus, uh, through Jesus, God invites us into a personal relationship with him. Because we believe that Jesus died so that we can call God our real and true Father. Because we can be close, we make a false connection between close and complacent, between invited to come to God and entitled, between easy to pray and cheap. Now, I know that we don't do this consciously or deliberately. I don't know anyone who would say that that is true, how they pray. It's a posture that we slip into accidentally when we go through the motions when we relate to God. And that's exactly why the teachers had to say, well, listen, guard your steps. Because this is something you'll do accidentally. But you see, this posture robs us of any sense of awe and amazement when we gather as God's people to worship. It robs us of any sense of privilege when we get to bring our needs before the eternal throne the glorious heaven. So hasty hearts need a reminder of the second half of verse 2. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Prayer can 
become vapour when we forget that we are not God. Another thing that happens when we forget when we forget that we're not God is that our worship has many words. See in verse three, many words mark the speech of a fool. Verse seven, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Instead, verse two, let your words be few. And in fact, verse one, draw near to listen. What's the problem with many words? Well, again, it's not so much about how many words were allowed. There's a quota of words we're allowed to have in a song or a prayer. Again, it's about the posture. Why do you think you have so much to say to God? I heard this explained really well uh, when I heard a, a talk by someone else, and they said that um, if you go to a workplace, you'll see there are two different ways that someone can ask someone to do something for them. So you might get a senior member of staff, the CEO, asking something of a junior member of staff, an intern. And you'll see the way that the CEO asks something from the intern is that they, they have to explain it really carefully. And they don't leave any room for a judgment call from this person. They basically say, look, here's what you have to do. On the assumption that if you do it in the way that I'm saying, we'll get the right output. Here's specifically what I'm going to need from you so that we can crack on with doing what we're doing. I need you to do this for me because when you get that done, it will serve what we're doing. But the other way that you can ask somebody for something is you can be a junior asking a senior. So you could be an intern turning to the CEO and asking them for something. And that's never going to happen unless the junior person, the intern, needs help. And the junior person is also asking for something, but they say, I don't know how to do it. I am me. I'm not trained. I'm not experienced. I don't have the know-how. And you, well, you know it all. You see this whole thing from the top. You know exactly what needs to be done, and you've got the power and authority to do this. I'm stuck. Can you help me? And a good question to ask yourself is, are my prayers more like the first type, where I've got some good ideas, some, some thoughts and clear prayer points, a good idea of what I want to pray for, because I think that if God answers the prayer, that will bring us to the right outcome, or are my prayers more like the second type, where I think, gosh, I am here and I am like this. And so our prayers are accompanied by few words, some sighs, maybe a mumbled, please help me. So the spiritual life with shallow and unsatisfying vapour is filled with prayers that give God the instructions for how we think our lives should go. Imagine if God answered all your prayers, do you think that would actually turn out well? Many words come from a person who thinks that they know a lot. Many words come from a person who wants to be in control. Later in the Bible we find Jesus picking up on this and he says, Did you not know that your Father in Heaven knew what you needed before you asked? Your many words weren't anything that brought anything new to light. It's, your many words weren't anything that persuaded God of anything or directed Him to the right answer. 
God already knew better than you did. Now, if you hear me say, if you're hearing me say, look, okay, guys, so we should change the way we pray. We should never have prayer points. We should never ask anyone for a prayer point. That missionary prayer letter you get every month, tear it up. We don't want prayer points. If you're hearing me say that, but remember, this is much more about the posture than it is about the actual form. Where we use prayer points, things that remind us what to pray for, they should be reminders of our empty-handedness. They should be a catalogue of where we are helpless, rather than a plan of action that we think we need in order to achieve something. The right posture is few words, empty hands, and a listening ear. But to do that, you've got to acknowledge that your ideas aren't really that important. Your plans can really hardly change anything. We've got to be real and admit that we are not the future changers here. But when we pray, when we turn to God in worship, He is. His words can change the universe. God is in heaven. And you are on earth. So we let our words be few. Once we realize that, we'll hang on his every word. When we read it, when it's shared, when it's explained, when we sing it. We'll bring a posture of empty-handedness, ready to receive. God is in heaven. And I remember that I'm on earth. A posture of many words is better. And so, so too is worship that's concerned with dreams and vows. Um, I have often wondered whether I'd like to do a PhD, um, and uh, I thought how great that would be. I'd love the idea of getting to uh, go and uh, study a little bit more, to really get deep into something, to do some research, and then what a PhD uh, finishes in is that you've done something, an original contribution, something that no one else has ever done. You've discovered something new. Oh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to have studied for something that, that breaks new ground, that contributes to the area of knowledge. And you know what? I would love to have the little um, word doctor in front of my name. You get to do that when you've got a PhD. Some of you have even done that. And you know that, that you have done something for society, for our knowledge that is lasting because you have contributed to research and to development, to things we didn't know before. I would love to do that, and when I tell people I'd like to do that, people will say, oh, well, that sounds really good, Josh. What would you like to do a PhD in? And then I'm a bit stuck. I say, oh, I, I don't really know. See, there's a problem there, because you've actually got to be interested in something to study it to that level. The problem is that I'm more excited by the dream than I am interested in the topic. Well, sadly, I can think of more than one Christian leader in our country and in other countries who's been more excited by the dream of what they can do for God, of planting churches, which is a good dream, of training up new pastors, which is a good dream, of being a presence in the city, which is a good dream, and far-reaching evangelism, which is a good dream. But I've known people who are far more excited about that dream than they are about being serious for reverence for God. And that, in verses 3 to 7, is the posture that the uh, teacher is taking aim at. 
a spiritual life that is vapor because it revolves more around what I'm going to achieve for God than it does about reverence. It's not just Christian leaders, though. It's anyone who uh, talks up a big spiritual game about daily devotions, the, the books that you read, the serving on a Sunday tea, going on a summer mission, speaks of a big spiritual game, but there's a gap between what their words say and what their heart loves. I was thinking about this this week, particularly because um, this week, as members, we set aside a particular day for a particular focus of prayer for a new church building. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be awful if our dreams and our vows to God about a new building were further along than our reverence for God? Wouldn't that be terrible if we prayed for a building where we could spread the news of Jesus to the city of Liverpool, but actually we had no intention of actually inviting anyone there? If we prayed for a church building that would double our services and yet still be resistant to what God is telling us in those services. The teacher warns us in verse 6, do not let your mouth lead you into sin. It's actually better just to be quiet about that. Be quiet about the dream and just focus on learning that you are not God. Because a spiritual life that's full of promises and ambitions and dreams, even if they're really good ones, well, you'll be frustrated that it's grasping for a cloud. Because hasty hearts, many words, and dreams and vows are missing something that the teacher in Ecclesiastes sees is the big thing in life that the life under the sun is all about. But we meet it here, we're going to meet it again as we carry on going through Ecclesiastes. The thing that's missing is the last two words of verse 7. Fear God. Now fear is a, a really great word, but it's a really loaded word, it's a really deep word, it's really nuanced, so it has a meaning that's a little bit complicated to explain. I'm going to try and get to the bottom of it because it's so important to what the teacher's thinking here. Well, sometimes Christians say, fearing God, uh, they say, well, it doesn't mean that you're scared of him. But actually, the word kind of does actually cover that. That's wrapped up in there. But sometimes we want to simplify it and, and say, well, it just means reverence or respect. Uh, that's sort of true as well. That's wrapped up in there, but that's a little bit weak to say that. A fear is a deep, deep response to something awesome that makes us stand in awe. In fact, some writers from past days would have said awful. We think awful means, oh, that's, that's really horrible. But it's, it's awful in the sense that it makes you full of awe. But in a way that you begin to tremble. It, re it includes, wrapped up in there, the, the sense of terror. But fear of God also has wrapped up in there the comfort to set you at ease. Uh, if you've ever been to Nose in Safari Park, 
Um, you can, that's just on the outskirts of Liverpool, and you can drive around and see all these great animals. And there's one section of the drive where you get to come into the lions. And as you're coming towards the lions, there are these signs in the ground that say, make sure your windows are wound up. Do not, by any, for any reason, open your doors. Lock your doors. So you start to get a sense of, oh, this is the big bit now. That this is the scary bit. And then you come to these electrified gates, and you drive through those. And then there's a second set of electrified gates. Oh, you really sense that this is the big bit. And then there's a jeep on the side of the warden. The warden never takes their eyes off what is going on. And we drive in there because we know that these are powerful, fearsome, awful animals. But we don't go in there to feel scared of them because we know we are safe. We know that there's a way to not be safe. There is a way to just open your door and go up and give it a little tickle under the chin and have your arm bitten off. We know there is terror, but we know we're safe. And why do we go to see them? Because there is something awesome about getting to see these magnificent animals. Their glorious manes, their massive paws. And, you know, if you're lucky, you'll get to see one yawning and you catch a glimpse of these teeth. And you don't look away. You want to see because standing in the presence of this powerful, fearsome thing is, it, it gives you, well, it gives you fear. And at the same time, you're afraid, and at the same time, you know you're perfectly safe. But you know, in the Bible, it's not just that. It's not just a sense of awe and terror and safety. There is a profound sense in the Bible that fear is wrapped up with joy and deep and unspeakable, inexpressible joy that makes us tremble. I said it was a complicated idea, so there's another illustration to explain it. Um, there was an Oscar-winning film at the end of the 90s called Saving Private Ryan. And it was about a team of soldiers who went to rescue one particular soldier from the front line to take him home safe, so he could go back safe home to his mum. And there is, one of the reasons it's so emotionally deep, so profound, is because this one soldier realises that the power and might and the training and the resources and even the sacrifice of life has all been turned towards his safety. And it's quite overwhelming to realise that. It's quite overwhelming to realise that the might of the military, all the artillery, all the missiles, all the strategy, all the commanders, and the crack team who make it through the most dangerous ground are doing this for your good. There's an overwhelming, trembling joy that comes when you realise that the power that makes you tremble is a power that is for your good. The trembling is not turning to jelly in terror, but an inexpressible realization that the inconceivable power and might of God is directed to your safety and your joy. When you come to see that the one with the mightiest arm looks at you with the Father's face, nowhere do we see this more displayed than at the cross of Jesus where we see the might and the wrath and the terror of heaven 
pour in force on the crucified Son. The powers of heaven all moving and working in the most profound display, also that you and me, tiny and insignificant creatures of dust, can be given this unimaginable honour of getting to be seated at the Father's table. The Gospel of Jesus grows in us a fear that is deeply reverential, comforting, safe, beautiful, awesome, awful, and joyful. You see, terrified fear, well, there is a fear of God that's full of terror, and it drives us to flee away from God for our lives. But gospel-taught fear drives us to flee to God all the time. And it's that, we come back to the passage, it's that deep, joyfully trembling fear that the teacher wants to see at the heart of our spiritual lives, if we're to guard our steps. Now it's important to say that that isn't an emotional state or a state of mind that we work ourselves into. So he's not saying, don't you dare start praying until you've had half an hour of this kind of working yourself into this trembling fear. And there's plenty of Christians who would apply this passage to say, yes, we mustn't ever start singing at church or we mustn't pray without having a kind of warm-up time to, to build ourselves into the right emotional state or, or state of mind. It's not actually telling us that we need to have a, a warm-up time it's not about being in a state of mind on the day. It's about you yourself cultivating, as a general thing in your life, cultivating a gospel-taught fear that cannot comprehend of you and God in any other way than I am here on earth and he is there in heaven. And the profoundness of that makes you tremble. Where fear becomes our default posture towards God. Later in the Bible we are going to be told that we can pray quickly. We can pray anywhere, anytime. Later on in the Bible, we're encouraged to come to God as a father and ask him for anything. Later on in the Bible, we're told how easy it is to come to God, and that is absolutely true. But that's because of the gospel. The gospel that teaches us the fear, an already attitude of fearing God. Because we come to the cross where we are taught then, when we dwell on Jesus, we are taught at the cross, but the death and resurrection of Jesus means that access to God is not cheap, but costly, but it is yours for free. It's at the cross we learn that God's holiness is fearsome and our rescue line, our only hope. At the cross we have learned and we come to learn a reverence, a fear, that becomes an already attitude that we carry with us, wherever we go. So that even our posture, and even a quick prayer in the car, our posture is going to be one that profoundly acknowledges that God is in heaven and I am on earth because of what I already know and already built my life on in the gospel. It's our, when our posture on a, the church on a destructive Sunday is one where it's already settled in our hearts, the fear of God. That we are on earth and he is in heaven and he sent his glorious son to die in our place. So if your spiritual walk feels like trying to bounce on this cotton wool cloud, 
that never materializes, you only find that you're falling through the vapor. But then this passage teaches us and tells us to guard our steps. Guard our steps away from a hasty heart, many words, and dreams and vows. Make sure that when we relate to God, it's all about going deep into the gospel of Jesus that teaches us to tremble in the profound and joyful fear of God. Let's take a moment of quiet to reflect on that and pray. Our dear Father, we are sorry for having hasty hearts. For having a posture that comes with many words and that gets more excited about dreams and vows than we do about coming to fear you. We pray by your Holy Spirit we would come to a deeper fear that would drive away these silly that you would help us whenever we reflect and come to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, whenever we learn about him, submit ourselves to him and live in obedience to him, we pray that you would be working in us a settled, constant attitude of fear that gives us a root in the deepest possible joy and that we would find that our life of worshipping, praying to you, relating to you, would not turn out to be mist and vapour, but would be really substantial because of what Jesus has done. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us the fear of the Lord and fill our hearts with awe and joy that we would worship from a, from a place that knows not only the reverence that we are here on earth and you are God in heaven, but knows the privilege and the grace that is ours, that we are here on earth and you are in heaven.